This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. In the far distant future, science tells us that our home planet Earth will become uninhabitable. It seems the human species must one day reckon with living on another planet. But how will we survive the journey? And how can we make a new life on a distant world? One way could be re-engineering our genetic code to withstand the dramatically different environment of another planet. This episode, I spoke to geneticist Christopher Mason to find out how we can prepare for life beyond Earth. Hello, I am Chris Mason. I'm a professor of genetics and physiology and biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine, which is the medical college for Cornell University in New York City. Uh, fantastic. Uh, thanks very much for, for speaking to me today, Chris. Um, now, um, normally on the, on the podcast, we have sort of uh, astronomers or astronauts or space scientists, um, but you're a, a, a geneticist and biologist by trade. Wh- where does uh, genetics and biology fit into the sort of sphere of astronomy and space flight and, and space? I think now, uh, b- you know, biology, genetics, uh, really clear molecular measurements of, of astronauts is becoming a kind of a key and really common feature uh, of going into space and really getting us thinking about not just how do we go visit Mars, but how do we sustainably inhabit the planet and stay there long term. And so really uh, our, our the experiments that we've been doing and publishing and the work that we've been uh, really you know, pioneering or collaborating with others in our lab to really get off the ground is the measurement, the sort of management of astronauts, and even think about ways to protect them in the future with not just you know physical methods or pharmacological methods, but even genetic methods. Fantastic. Yeah. So what does um, space actually do to the human body? So space is rough on the body. It is, as most people probably heard, uh, hard on the bones where the bones start to really um, almost decay away. You can actually see calcium coming out in urine for most astronauts. And it also, you know, the heart um, essentially shrinks a little bit. Often the uh, uh, some of the, the vasculatures, your veins and arteries can even get inflamed or uh, even also uh, get a little bit disrupted. It's hard on the brain. Uh, you have a lot of radiation coming at you. The fluids move around through your body in different ways. Uh, normally, obviously, human bodies used to having gravity. If suddenly there's no gravity, it's hard on the body. But it's also extraordinarily adaptive. So even though you are irradiated and having all your fluids move in unusual directions, and you're in a confined and isolated space, and you know uh, it's a tough mission for every time you go up. The body's really plastic; it, it adapts right really quickly. And so, we, we even though we see damaged DNA and bro- broken DNA and, and dying cells, we see regeneration. We see sort of adaptation, and we see uh, the body quickly respond to space blood. What do you think is a, a bigger problem um, for, for astronauts? Is it the uh, weightlessness, or is it the actual harsh conditions of space, like the the vacuum and the radiation? Yeah, so there are five main hazards of spaceflight that at least have been that we published and also are highlighted by NASA, which include, you know, the number one, though, is probably radiation. So I think the biggest risk is, you know, even though you're still within the protective Van Allen belts of the Earth's magnetosphere, 
uh, you are still getting when you're up there about five uh, X-rays a day. And that's a normally if you get a chest X-ray, that's just in one spot of your body, right? There's the whole body being irradiated, which you know the human bodies don't like to be completely irradiated generally, but they can tolerate it, but they'd probably prefer not to. So you know, you know, in you know, you can do it, you know, once a day, twice a day, but five times a day, every day does start to add up, and so we can actually see that radiation and see, you know, basically broken fragments of DNA. It's what's called um, essentially eight oxoguanosine, is basically damaged genetic bases uh, come out of the urine, show those in the blood. We can see the mitochondria responding to this sort of uh, radiation. So that is one of the biggest risks is radiation. There's also the obviously the change in gravity. There is, you know, the isolation of being up there is hard on, on the brain and the psychosocial aspects. Uh, there's also, you know, some of the other hazards are just, you know, really you're up there, you're, you're far away. So if something goes wrong, uh, the, 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 you know, the distance from any ability to get help is a big problem. And then, and then finally just, um, you know, it's a harsh environment. So, you know, if something goes wrong, you're, there's, you know, uh, you can't be like, you know, if you're having a bad day on earth, you can go take a walk outside and here there's nowhere to go take a walk. So. Part of the isolation is also uh, there's nowhere to go, even if you want to get away from the isolation. <laughs> All this is sort of um, uh, partly, to, well, is uh, discussed in your new book, which is due to be coming out around the time we're recording the podcast um, in a few weeks, I think, which is called The Next 500 Years. What does what does the 500 years of, of the title uh, refer to? I put out a plan, actually. I penned this about 10 years ago for our lab's website when I was just starting basically the lab at Cornell. And I thought, well, uh, what's coming in genetics, what's coming in biology, what will be coming as we go out the past 5, 10, or 100, or even 500 years. And I put it together because I, I view it not just as a really uh, an outline or roadmap of technological investment, but it's really also a very personal treatise of hope for what I think humanity can accomplish in the next 500 years. I will, uh, and, and not just my lab at all, they're collaborating in partner labs, but I will be dead for the vast majority of this plan. The, the plan is not for me to be around 500 years, but that it was a very uh, human activity to make plans that are long-term. And actually, I think one of the most quintessential human traits is to have a plan that is beyond your own lifetime or even through multiple generations. So I, I put this together as what I, I hope will happen and what we're contributing towards directly to better understand the genome, the human genome, as well as other microbial genomes, as well as really other, you know, any biology that we could use to better understand how we can protect ourselves uh, in long-term spaceflight. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I was sort of um, thinking about that that plan. It, it, if you if you want to put it in sort of lay, layperson's terms, is is it essentially amount to sort of re-engineering the human body to to survive the harsh realities of space? Because most people would sort of think if we're going to go to Mars, we need to change Mars. But it sounds like you're sort of saying if we're going to go to Mars, we need to change ourselves. Oh, I think we may have to do both. I mean, we might have to only do one. Like if if suddenly terraforming a whole planet becomes really easy and we can do it over hundreds of years or decades instead of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years. If somehow technologically we get that done, great. Uh, but Mars only has 38% of the gravity, so it's going to be hard to keep uh, that atmosphere there. And as we've probably seen in the past, it has kind of already gone away once. So, you know, I'm not against that. That'd be great if somehow we could do that. But I, I kind of want to I put the book out there as a, as a proposal because we know that we already do modify human cells therapeutically and use them routinely today. Uh, for immunotherapy, for targeted therapies, for, you know, ameliorating disease. Uh, so this is actually not a new thing that we do. It's just now we're doing it, thinking about doing it for either temporary or maybe even possibly permanent genetic changes to enable new features that we already have in our body in some cases or that we could co-opt from other organisms who've learned how to adapt to really extreme environments. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the thesis of the book is that 
We can learn from all lessons of evolution in any creature to enable us to survive on places that we currently can't survive, potentially. Yeah, that's so cool because, you know, um, sometimes whenever you're, you're thinking about the, the studies into um, the effects of, of um, space and, and witnesses on, on astronauts' bodies, um, there's a certain element where you sort of think, Surely this is all just sort of academic because because there's nothing we can actually do about that. You know, there's nothing we can do about space and nothing we can do about the human body. But 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 you're sort of saying that there is something we can do about the human body. We can actually change change our genes. Is, is that actually sort of feasible? Yeah, hundred percent. So and what's extraordinary about this is is it seems like it's science fiction. It seems like oh, how could you do that? You know, this is uh you know what what are the, what's the basis for that? So what's important about the book is there's not a single description of any of the technology in the book that doesn't already exist today. I'm just basically projecting what could happen as we continue to just slightly improve them. So it doesn't require any strange new technology, strange new device, uh, some new kind of, you know, chromosome that we don't have in our genome or some new, you know, some whole new component of biology. It's just, you know, learning from other uh, creatures, in particular bacteria, we've learned how to use CRISPR, which is their innate, basically immune system that we can use as a way to edit DNA. We've also learned there's modifications of that where you can do Instead of, you know, genome editing, a lot of people have heard about CRISPR and ways you can modify DNA, almost like a typewriter on your genetic code, uh, but also, or I should say a keyboard typewriter makes me sound kind of old, but the, um, but you know, you can actually edit into the document of your uh, blueprint of life, but you can also change the epigenomes. There are uh, variations I talk about in the book about what's called epigenome editing, where you're changing not the A, C, G, and T, the genetic code. Instead, you're changing just how it's regulated, whether something is turned on or turned off. Essentially, you can just turn, you know, just change the light switch of your DNA, not change the electricity of your of your entire wiring diagram of your body. And what that means is you could turn on genes just as you need them. So if you have a higher burst of radiation, increase DNA repair enzymes just for a little while and then bring them back down later. There's actually we have this working in our lab for several projects. And we're also doing, you know, genome editing. We're adding genes from some species and putting them into human cells. So I think. You know, what I describe a lot in the book are technologies that exist today that we're using in my laboratory as we speak that let you change either the genetic catalog of what's in human cells or how you turn them on and off. And, and both of which I think we could use and deploy uh, to keep future astronauts safe or even current astronauts. So cool. Um, I, I suppose like we're, we're sort of talking about, you know, um, astronauts on the ISS or sort of astronauts on, on spacecraft traveling beyond, you know, the moon to Mars and things like that. Um, but just, just how far could you take it? Like, pr- presumably you, you couldn't, you know, um, re-engineer the human body to survive like somewhere like Venus or, or Neptune, where it's a lot more extreme. You know, Mar- Mars is relatively speaking uh, similar to Earth, isn't it? But in comparison to somewhere like Venus or, or Neptune? Yeah, there are some planets will be harder than others, no question. So Mars, of course, has only 1% of the atmosphere. It has almost no protective magnetosphere. So you have more radiation, less of a protective atmosphere, less of an atmosphere at all. It's very dry. There is some water ice there. But the other planets, Venus is, is a hellscape. It's really hot there. You could maybe survive in the clouds, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I'm not saying we would just deploy uh, biological adaptation mechanisms to survive. We would still need physical protective suits, protective hardware. We would still want to have potentially pharmacological interventions that we know of things, drugs that already work or therapeutics that are already work and have gone through clinical trials. Uh, it's just we're adding another layer. So it's not just physical and pharmacological. It's also genetic uh, protections and adaptations. But I think Venus, that'd probably be pretty high up. I don't know if we can make a human body survive, you know, hundreds of degrees Celsius. And if it's, you know, I talk a lot about Titan in the book because they're, uh, it's not necessarily because I think we have human bodies that could swim in lakes of methane, which would be really cold. 
but you could actually potentially, you know, there even, you know, you could actually, methane is a really great source of fuel. So you could have little homes that are maybe using the methane. If there's really lakes of uh, liquid methane, you could actually probably uh, convert some of them into fuel, uh, some of which we already have processes on Earth that work for that. So I think I, I think we'd still, as humans, want to be in a, maybe something near 72 degrees uh, and a place where you can have cocktails and, and relax. And so, I, you know, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I think we'd still want to have those kind of homes, if you will, that are at least a little close to what we have today. Yeah, I think that ultimately when you sort of think about um, the, the the fact that humans or well, the idea that humans might one day have to leave Earth, it, it, it sort of makes me um, like sad that we would have to leave Earth, you know, like how, like even if we could work out how to survive on Titan or on Mars, it's not really preferable, is it, to just to just staying on Earth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and it's actually inevitable. The biggest argument I make, the first thing I say in the book really is that it's a sense of duty, I feel, towards towards, the, the, towards humanity, but also that humans have a unique duty that no other species have. Like, as far as we know, uh, we're the only species that have this really unique awareness of extinction. We, 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 humans and humans alone, again, there might be, maybe dolphins think about it or octopuses or some you know, pygmy marmosets, but to our knowledge, it's only humans who can understand what it means for a whole species to go away, for extinction, or even for all of life to go away. And that means it's only us that can prevent it. And you know, our track record on this is mixed as, as humanity goes, but we at least now are aware of it and can actually serve as basically the shepherds for all of life. And I think life is very precious and very rare in the universe. As far as I know, this is it. And so I'd like it to last longer than just uh, the lifespan of this planet or the solar system. And if you you know, all ethical questions become crystal clear through the lens of a billion year time frame. If you think that long, that's when the sun will start to get too hot. The earth will probably become pretty uninhabitable by one or 1.5 billion years. You know, actually, when I was writing the book, I had this moment of great sadness because I, I always had my head the number 5 billion or 4.7 billion years till the sun, you know, becomes a red giant and engulfs the inner planets. So I was like, oh, we've got a lot of time. We've got like 5 billion years. But really, uh, the projected luminescent increase of the sun would be in about a billion years. It's going to get really hot where uh, the Earth will be really hard to survive on. Oceans will start to, you know, start boiling off. It's going to be pretty intolerable. And so I really felt like, you know, I came downstairs and told my wife, I was like, I just thought we had more time. You know, I thought we had five billion <laughs> years and suddenly realized I'm right. We really got like a billion years. And, you know, she said, well, that's still pretty far away. I said, I know, but, I, you know, it's the equivalent of having like a son or daughter and thinking, oh, they'll live to be a hundred years old. And someone coming and saying, actually, they cannot live beyond 20. It was disheartening to think about that. Everything that's here, you have perfect world peace and perfect harmony of all organisms on Earth. Uh, they'll start to get fried to a crisp uh, within probably in about a billion years and a little bit afterwards. So, uh, so what that means is if we want you know, anything and everything to be preserved, we have to begin to think about uh, what is the next place we'll go. And, and you know, there's the usual counter arguments I address in the book as well. We have other things we should spend money on. Should we wait till we have better technology? You know, you know, we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We have already done this, uh, for decades that we can both, you know, use technology to explore space while solving sociological and, and, you know, economic problems on earth. Uh, all, they can all be addressed at the same time. And it's not a question of, of if, it's, it's when we have to go or else it all goes, uh, with us. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've sort of answered this question already, but I was, I was sort of wondering how you would address, um, certain people who might argue of the sort of almost like what they might call the uh, sanctity of evolution, you know, evolution, evolution allowed us to develop and evolution or the fate of the universe, if you want to use the word, a word like fate, will eventually get rid of us. So um, is it is it almost our, our, our moralistic duty to to not leave Earth and, and, and to leave us to our own sort of evolutionary fate? So it's a great question. It's a fantastic uh, cocktail party question of, you know, should should we let humans perish or not? Like, let's assume that we have the capacity to prevent it, which I argue that we do. 
you know, is the universe better off without us or with us is really a key question. And I argue that, again, here, anything that you like in the universe, if it has anything to do with organisms, they will all perish unless something actually protects them and moves them to another planet. So regardless of the issues with humanity, and there are many, you know, there's there's racism and, and structural inequalities and injustices that are evident in the news every day. There's nothing else that will protect anything that you might care about on this planet. And so if you if you're a complete nihilist and you don't care about anything, well, there's not much to talk about anyway. But if you have any sort of value of any organism or any life form at all, to our knowledge, nothing else can actually safeguard them beyond ourselves. And so uh, for all of our issues, I think that one key tenet and sort of trait of humanity is something that uh, makes us worth preserving and, and giving us a little bit of credit to keep us around for a little longer. And I do say in the book, it might not be us forever. It could be maybe some other species takes over this idea of like a guardian kind of role in a billion years, or maybe it'd be machines. Some people think AI might do this at some point. AI might like wipe us out, and then maybe they would become the guardians of complex life in the universe. And I'm fine with that. I actually describe it as being matter uh, agnostic towards consciousness. Is that if there's as long as there's something that's uh, I think caretaking complexity in the universe, I'm okay with it. And it should it's probably going to be us, but it might be something else too. <laughs> yeah, that sort of brings me on to another point I wanted to ask you is that. Um... Presumably, if, if, if we were to do some sort of um, Earth evacuation and, and get off the planet, we don't only rely on ourselves to survive. You know, we like we survive on our, on our ecosystem, but presumably we can't bring all the other animals and, and plants with us. So we're sort of leaving behind all the things that keep us in that sort of nice, nice balance. Yeah, we'd have to either bring some of them with them and maybe bring the key, bring, bring the favorites we, uh, to with us or... Uh, have, have a very small suitcase you can pick your 10 things you like or you know we, we would have to choose carefully but also describe in the book we could think about ways to reduce our dependency on a lot of the other sort of uh, organisms on earth that keep us alive so for example we need there's nine essential amino acids that everyone needs out of their diet out of the 20 amino acids that you need to make all proteins in your body you know, why is that why can't we make all of our own amino acids it's kind of sad right some organisms on earth can do that so I describe methods in the book to make what are called prototrophic humans, where you could make all of your own goods. Uh, so then you would just be eating for pleasure rather than necessity. And other things like vitamin C, for example, if you don't have enough vitamin C, you say from lines, you might get scurvy. And this is interesting because there is a gene for synthesizing vitamin C that's in our DNA. It's just been inactivated through evolution. It's called a gulo. It's basically called a pseudogene. It's like almost a degraded version of a gene. But if you just tweak it and reactivated it, we could make all of our own vitamin C. And there's other primates that do this. There's actually a split of kinds of primates. There's some that are dry nose or wet nose. Obviously, humans are a dry nose primate unless you have a cold. But there's others more, more like wet nose primates, and they still make all their own vitamin C, actually. So there are things we've learned about our genome that we have found. And so, well, what if we just put that back to the way it used to be? Uh, and that'll make it easier for some of the long trips. If we could make our own amino acids and vitamins in our body. Uh, but we still want to eat for pleasure whenever you can as well. So we'd have to figure out how do you get a you know, some desserts uh, in far, far space, but I don't know what they'll be, brownies or cookies or something. Yeah. Have you ever thought about um, what it would take to get to uh, an exoplanet, you know, like a, a planet that's around a distant star? Like, we know it's basically Earth Earth, Earth 2.0, but it's an exoplanet, so we've got to travel, you know, tens or hundreds of light years at least to get there. On the way, we would potentially have to, throughout the journey, die and reproduce and die and reproduce because it's going to take so long to get there. How, how, how do you think that that would play out in terms of the, the, you know, the harsh environment of space and raising families and, and, and generations? It'll be, it'll, it'll require something called the generation ship, which has been described in the literature actually for over 100 years as this idea 
of people living and dying in the same spacecraft, which to some people, you know, sounds awful because you, you, you know, become a child and you say, you're going to be on this one spacecraft, say it's only 50 or 60 rooms and this is it for your whole existence. And then you're going to have kids and they're going to live and die in the spacecraft. And you, at least in the estimates I have in the book for some of the possible exoplanets, it might take 20 generations uh, to live and die in that craft before they'd reach an exoplanet. Uh, and also, when they get there, maybe the exoplanet's not as good as we thought it was from far away, so they might have to go to a different one. So it might actually be 20 or 25 or 30 generations, assuming they have methods for sustainable propulsion and food and resources. So all those things would have to be solved, but they're not, they're not you know, um, unsolvable. They're not like we're trying to create and manipulate antimatter at scale or fold space-time, which would be great if we could, but that's, you know, we have no way of doing that now. And so, you know, it also, I think, you know, 20 years ago seemed really impossible because you think, what are you going to do? If you're just in like a small ship for, for decades, but we didn't have a concept, I think then as we do now, but you could have the totality of all of Netflix or, uh, every movie and every song and every cultural element ever created by humanity could come with you. So you'd have a lot that's with you and more would be broadcast. Uh, even though you're traveling away from earth, more could be sent from earth. So you get a little bit of updates. So that makes it a little bit more, at least mentally possible. Also, we've all lived in a pandemic for a year and it hasn't been pleasant, but I think people is now things like, well, at least I can get situated for about a year. Uh, and the second thing is we have better knowledge of biology that we can keep people al- alive, I think, in those constrained environments and like the astronauts we've studied. Um, and, and the final, our, yeah, I guess, thing I'd say is we are already on a generation ship. It's just a really big one called Earth. And, you know, there's no other planet you can go to now. You're stuck here. You can maybe go to the space station, right? But there's no, it's not like you have any other options. Like, and Earth is wonderful. It's uh, cer- certainly my favorite planet uh, so far. But is, you know, the, this is just a really big generation ship that we have here, I think. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. I, I would definitely like to um, get your insights on because um, you, you've been involved in the uh, Scott Kelly um, experiment, which is um, anyone who's not aware is um, uh, Scott Kelly was the uh, NASA astronaut who spent a year in the on the space station. Um, t- tell us about that about that um, study and and what you learned. Yeah, so I was the head geneticist for the study, and uh, one of the there were ten teams chosen, and my lab was one of the ten teams. So it was really a group effort. But we led a lot of the work on the genetics and the epigenetics and some of the the gene expression measures. So what happens to human cells and microbial cells and how they're changing at the DNA and RNA level. And we saw this, you know, worked with Susan Bailey, uh, for example, and we saw that uh, telomeres got longer in space, which was surprising. So we got in some ways almost like closer towards what would be a younger state. And we also saw, you know, a lot of his genes were quickly changing when he got into space. A lot of them dealing with radiation or DNA repair. Uh, or actually, you know, immune system adaptation. So we could see all this in his blood, basically. And and we're continuing to study him to this day, him and his brother. Uh, they're identical twins and, and so seeing what happens to them before and after spaceflight, uh, as well as planning for other missions that NASA has uh, set up from other other year-long missions and also uh, with some uh, SpaceX astronauts that are coming. So we're we're expanding the study to look at other astronauts and see well, what happens to the body, how do we learn about the changes, and can we uh, help make it less stressful or painful on the body. Mm. With, the, with the Scott Kelly... Um study was there anything that how did it sort of happen in terms of what you expected to happen and what you didn't was there did, did more stuff happen that you expected to happen or, or that you didn't expect uh, i guess i'd say and i kind of alluded to this in the very beginning is that we, we saw so many things change there were more things that changed than i than i thought would change although i guess we you know the whole human body in space using the full battery of all of current modern molecular biology methods and we saw everything change from his dna to rna his microbes changed small molecules in his blood called metabolites. Those change. We saw his lipid levels change, vitamin levels. Like, I mean, essentially, you know, his eyes changed a little bit, his carotid artery in his neck, the big artery in your neck, that got bigger and inflamed. His heart changed. Cognitive metrics changed. Like, everything changed, basically. Almost everything that we were measuring changed. But it's extraordinary. It's almost all of them went back to normal as soon as he got back to Earth. 
uh, given a few days. And so we saw like even those microbes in his gut, in his stomach changed. He got different composition and went back to normal. And a lot of his genes changed expression going up and going down and, and really adapting. About 93% of them went back to normal. Some of them still were perturbed six months later, but mostly went back to normal. And also telomeres got back to normal when he got back to Earth. He was even two inches taller when he was in space, but that went right back to normal as soon as he landed. So uh, what's extraordinary is that really everything changes when you're in space, but the, the, almost all of it, the body uh, can put back together once you're back in gravity. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, you know, Scott Kelly's still, you know, um, you know, t- touring the world and writing books and he's still a, you know, a smart, physically fit guy. But um, w- w- were there any of those differences that you thought, oh, actually, if, if, if that kept going for five years, that, that would actually be a problem? Yeah, some of this is around the mutations we could see in his in his bone, you know, in his blood, basically coming from his bones. Where we saw uh, one measure is called clonal hematopoiesis, which means it's mutations like a clone of a mutated cell that you can find in the bone marrow that what makes your blood the hematopoiesis. And we could see different mutations going up and down, and then some of them coming up after he got back on Earth. And I mean, we don't have enough data yet to know if it's really because of the radiation or the stress of the spaceflight, but there are certain aspects of, you know, basically every mutation we found in him, we're keeping an eye on long term. It's almost like a surveillance to make sure nothing gets out of too big. Or, for example, if you have a mole on your back and you, you know, it, it's not so much a problem if you have a mole. It's when it starts to get too big or starts to change color or, you know, it's like any, any potentially, you know, a worrisome spot on your body or in your DNA. You just can't keep an eye on it. As long as it stays the same, it's probably okay. But if it starts to get bigger or change, that's when you, we want to, you know, think about therapies or other options. Mm-hmm. And with, with the results from from something like the the twin study, the the uh, Scott Kelly Kelly study, does that sort of give you the um, ability to to look at the data and sort of say, right, these are the, the from a genetics point of view, these are the things we need to concentrate on on being able to fix or being able to change? Yeah, these things are just a roadmap of which genes, which molecules are the most responsive to spaceflight, are the ones that we could target, are the ones that we could actually you know help, almost giving like a boost if you need more of something or or tamper down if you need less of other molecules. So we basically have, you know, a, a molecular roadmap of spaceflight that we could start to look at, you know, other 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 missions, uh, someday other planets, and seeing so if gravity's ideally if gravity's lower, uh, we think that some of these molecules wouldn't be as harsh on the return to gravity. So for example, space wasn't so bad as as, as much as it was returning back to gravity was really rough on the body, much more so than than even getting into space for a lot of these markers. So we think. Uh, that's where we're focusing a lot of our efforts now. Is um, it's 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 uh, leaving gravity is rough, but getting back is is even harder. I'd say. <laughs> um, j- just to go back to your point, a point you made earlier um, about sort of people saying, shouldn't we be using concentrating our efforts on on Earth? Um, presumably, a lot of the stuff out of the the twin study or the the, the Scott Kelly study or all the sort of space genetics that you're doing, pres- presumably that that does have um, u- uses on Earth. Yeah, like so several things did. So we, you know, some of this just the protocols for doing experiments in space means they had to be by definition in a small and limited resource setting. So we we actually pioneered sequence DNA sequencing in space and uh, collection methods for getting cells preserved in space with Scott Kelly and with a follow up mission with Kate Rubens, and particularly on the sequencing. So it really forced us to develop new tools and methods that could work in zero gravity. Uh, you know, pipettes that work in zero gravity. And also uh, technologies and tools that work fine in zero gravity that you can only have really one or two or, or three steps. You can't have a, a 25 step protocol doing it in zero gravity. It's too hard to do, but you can actually, you know, it forces us to get protocols so we can do diagnostics in space. 
So we can actually start to do uh, even, you know, blood draws and zero gravity and, and, and characterize that blood. And then also to uh, analyze the data. So we actually did uh, sequencing and analysis of data, you know, in space. So you can do it on, basically you can put almost a supercomputer, the components of it into as much of it cram it into an, like an iPad, basically, or a Surface Pro. Uh, and do the analysis of, of sequence data right there uh, in the space station. So it forces to be nimble from programming to experiments uh, to the informatics of, of, the, of the data. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, well, uh, Chris, uh, thanks very much for speaking to me today about this. It's um, and just you know, uh, good luck with all your future research. I can't wait to hear what what else comes out of the um, the uh, Scott Kelly study. And obviously, good luck with the book when it comes out. And yeah, thanks thanks again for speaking to me. Thanks so much. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night Magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skynightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider.